Medic 61, District 6, stage first shooting. Emmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378 Tango, 1654. District 37 around. District 87 around. Welcome to Inside EMS. Now here are your hosts, Chris Ceballero and Kelly Grayson. Well, once again, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Ceballero. And uh, i got to tell you, I'm a little bit injured for this show, and, and I know we're going to bring Kelly Grayson in here soon, but I am now uh, giving this show under the care of a physician. I have a kidney stone that's the size probably of a uh, pea. I may have to have some surgery later this week, some lithotripsy, whatever it's called. So uh, you take it easy on me. It's going to be a really good show. So let's go ahead and bring Kelly Grayson in here. This is the guy who puts the funk in the word dysfunctional, my good friend Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, Chris. I, you know, I was wondering what that what that uh, wailing noise was in the background. It turns out it's the wambulance on the way for Chris for his kidney stone. I got to tell you, it's not. Uh, this is something that's really important. I mean, I don't usually like to get sick. You know, I'm close to that age. I may be tipping over any time. You know, I just well, don't want to die during this show. You know, you need some diuretics to to flush it through your system. I I would I would suggest beer. That's a good one. I'll say I'll put this tea down and go with that. But you know, last week we had a really great show. We had Sean Eddy on, and uh, we got some really great responses from that show. Yeah, yeah. The the uh, money smart medics is is turning out to be a pretty pretty uh, um, good deal and and information that most of us need to hear. I know that I'm uh, I plan to implement some of his money management strategies myself because, like most of our listeners you know I, I live paycheck to paycheck as well i don't get a chance to save much and it's comforting to know that they're you know it doesn't have to be that way if i'm just uh if i'm just disciplined enough to to implement some of the strategies he outlines yeah and i think he really lays it and one of the things that we're going to do is since we have such great response uh from money smart medics and sean eddie he's going to give us his tip of the week uh for a few weeks and we're going to go ahead and share a tip of the week with you and kind of drive you to the money smart medics website and uh, use some of those things uh, that he's talking about and i think you're going to see a difference in uh, how you're managing your money but this tip of the week that comes from sean eddie is that five dollar a day coffee or that five dollar a day lunch Sometimes we get that Starbucks twice a day, but Sean Eddy tells us that if you save $5 a day from when you're 20 to 64 in just an average money market account, you will have $2.7 million by the time you retire just from drinking coffee. How about that? How about that? Witchcraft is this? I'm telling you, man. It's the math. I mean, I'm I'm not writing it. I'm just reporting it. I knew I should have paid attention to math in high school and college. I really should have. So can you imagine the money that Starbucks is making with that five bucks a day? Oh, I'm, you know, and, and I'm here to tell you, you know, a, a typical shift at work, I'm spending well more than $5 a day uh, at a, um, on junk. Uh, I could easily save five bucks a day. Um, and, and it's not as if I'd have to go hungry to uh, to uh, do it. Uh, anyone who's looked at me can tell I, I haven't missed many meals. Two point two point six million sounds pretty good. I'm, I'm That's right. late in life, but uh, maybe. If I can just get to a million, that'd be nice. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, that's the way to do it. So, But let's go ahead and start the show. You know, we're going to have a little special show uh, this time. We've, we've done this uh, past couple shows. We're going to talk to Dr. Peter Antevi later on the guest table. And, and we're going to move this into the clinical issue because I think he's got an important topic to talk about when it comes to pediatric resuscitation. But before we get there, Kelly, go ahead and hit us with our first story. 
This is uh, EMS News of the Weird. I just could not resist this because the jokes just write themselves. Idaho teens crashed after one lights driver's armpit hair on fire. It, wasn't that funny as heck? That, Boise, Idaho, an SUV full of teenagers, five people, none of them restrained, uh, two of them ejected after one of them lit the driver's armpit hair on fire. There's, there's distracted driving, and then there's distracted driving. I, I don't... First of all, if you're driving a vehicle and someone is able to light your armpit hair on fire, that presupposes a few things. You know, first of all, you're driving your vehicle without a shirt on. Secondly, either you have enough armpit hair that you look like you've got buckwheat in a headlock, or you're not keeping your hands at 10 and 2 on the wheel. How can someone get to your armpit hair if you, unless you're holding your arms up? That's just ridiculous. <laughs> so let that, be a lesson to you. let that be a lesson to you guys. Keep your hands at 10 and 2 on the wheel, and no one can get to your armpit hair. And, uh, you know, shave, manscape a little bit, and these things these things won't happen to you. That is just awesome. So, you know, I mean, it, it begs the question. I love that. It begs the question. But, you know, uh, I mean, and how do you treat that? I mean, how do you treat that? I mean, do you, what's, what is that, 4%? I mean, where is that in the rule of nines? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Probably uh, the palmer surface method, you know, just you could you could get a, about a palm under an armpit. So right. As anyone who's ever made armpit, armpit farts can tell you. So that would be a 1%, I guess. All right, now I guess now we're turning from a family show, so let's get back to the news. So, <laughs> you know, we talked about it on a couple shows ago, some of the challenges that San Francisco firefighters oh, man, are having. It gets worse and worse, doesn't it? It does, and now uh, I guess there's a vote of no confidence that have come from the field, and they've sent a letter to the uh, mayor asking for the removal of the fire chief. And, and anytime you have a loss of confidence in leadership, Kelly, it, it's really hard to get the mission done. It's really hard to uh, keep those folks motivated. And there are some real challenges going on out there in San Francisco. Yeah. I, I don't know how they come back from this. Uh, when you get to the point where your, your rank and file firefighters and, and medics have publicly stated they have no confidence in your leadership, um, I, I don't know if... Uh, if the chief will will uh, survive this uh, this uh, scandal, uh, hopefully Chief Chief White is able to turn things around. But uh, she's she's got a uh, tough task ahead of her uh, without without the confidence and the buy-in from her rank and file staff. This all stems back from from uh, San Francisco Fire's inability to meet response time standards and and uh, their ambulance shortage. Um, and in addition to her firefighters' lack of confidence, there's a San Francisco city supervisor who is a former member of, of the uh, fire commission, Supervisor London Breed, wants to change city uh, ordinances to, to require minimum standards, minimum staffing standards for EMS. They have, and, and there's some pretty damning stuff in, in the article here. They talk about since 2012, they've had the money to buy 16 ambulances and haven't bought them yet you know have, they've had the money to do this for almost two years and these ambulances have i don't know how long it it takes to spec out an ambulance but two and a half years would seem to be a, a pretty inordinate amount of time the city asked for or the the fire department asked for 42 new paramedics and the city gave them enough for 16 and the, their position seems to be we're throwing good money after bad and uh, the money is not being used wisely. Whether that is true or not uh, remains to be seen, but uh, San Francisco's got some problems. And I, I would imagine with, with as much news coverage as it's gotten right, uh, lately, uh, Detroit Fire and uh, D.C. Fire EMS are, are uh, chuckling. They're no longer in the news <laughs> this much. 
or from the other side, the mayor spokeswoman says that uh, they haven't seen the letter yet from the field, but they have confidence in their chief. And I guess we'll wait for the next news to come out of San Francisco and to have something to talk about. But let's go ahead and bring up our next story, Kelly. Here's a uh, high schoolers training as EMT students in Arizona County. This is a certified high school program where the students complete EMT training and uh, tuition free as part of the that fire department or that uh, district's mission to put Arizona to work as part of their uh, uh, labor initiative. There are about 50 high school students enrolled in Pima County, Pima County's uh, emergency medical technicians course, and uh, they're they're high schoolers. and And I don't know if you're familiar with with national registry standards, but as a senior in high school and, and, and you're below the age of 18, you can take an EMT course provided your, your school principal signs off on it and, and you maintain your academic standards and, and you can go ahead and test the national registry exam. They just don't grade it and process your results until you turn 18. What do you think, Chris? Uh, are we dipping too deep into the well all the way down to the high school age to, to, to get people into our profession? Uh, are, are high schoolers capable psychologically and emotionally of dealing with the stresses of EMS? Yeah, you know, I think that that's a really good question. And I think that, you know, the answer is really, it depends. But I think that a lot of them can handle the things that, you know, we go through. And Mm -hmm. ask yourself the question, when is it that you would have felt comfortable doing what you're doing at what age? You know, I started started in the field as, or I became a, a, a paramedic in 1985. I was 20 years old. And was I able to handle? Well, I was in the military, so I didn't get to see the things that you see in an urban city. So would I have been able to handle all those things? I got to think I would. So now let's take that back a little bit. Can that be done at 16 years old? Can that be done at 17 years old? I think depending on that individual, the answer is yes. Uh, I I think it can. Uh, I think a high schooler can successfully complete an EMT course and, and, and move on to a career in emergency medical services but not just any teenager. And my experience from this stems from having taught an EMT class in a high school. I taught a high school-based emergency medical technician class for a medical magnet school, and it was an abysmal failure. And not because, not because so much the kids, uh, the kids were all smart, they were honor students, uh, some of them were national merit scholars, but they did not approach, or they did not come into the program with, with the proper expectations. And the one thing that was missing in that program, I was a hired instructor. I didn't, uh, I didn't have the opportunity to set it up. The one thing that was missing from that program was an interview process. It takes a special high schooler, not just one who is academically strong, but uh, mentally strong as well, to deal with the stresses that come with an EMT class. Uh, they were in no way prepared for the, the depth of the information and the time demands on their system, particularly in, you know, in, in their senior year of high school where they've got so many other things going on and, and they had no idea how tough the class would be. I think with, a, with an interview process and, and bringing their parents into the interview, maybe making the kids write an essay why I want to be an EMT, uh, probably would have, would have made the difference in the success or failure of that program. And I think going back to what we talked about a few shows ago, you know, now you're able to take these high school people, once they become EMTs and once they graduate high school, that they could go right into paramedic school without any experience. So that goes back to that argument again. And I think if you if the education program is, is well done in the first place, that ex, the, that lack of experience is, is mitigated by a good education program. But how many well, times... We're never going to agree on that. I know, but... I'm right and you're wrong. And listen to me. At least for today, I've got this, you know, I've got this plum-sized, 
you know, kidney stone that's going on inside my... Well, it's growing as we talk, Sevillero. It's, I mean, it's painful. I'm trying to get through... Maybe it's just the conversation that's painful. I don't know, but... Let me pull out my tiny little violin and start playing it for you. You know, if the roles were reversed, I'd be playing the violin, okay? I bet you wouldn't even be able to tell I was having a kidney stone, because that's just how I roll, baby. All right, well, fine. So, Kelly, remember a couple shows ago, we talked about in our clinical issue, we talked about pediatric education, and I think we hit some really great points where we talked about some of the challenges that we have when it comes to pediatric education, and one of the things... Or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. Thank you for bringing that up. But one of the things we talked about is we talked about the hand-heavy pediatric system and something that I'm very excited about and been very excited about. So why don't you go ahead and introduce the clinical issue here? I think people are going to be surprised, and I think we have some uh, great things to talk about. We're combining our guest table and our clinical issue. We've got Dr. Peter Antevi, developer of the Antevi Pediatric Emergency System. Doc Pete's going to come on and, and tell us about the not only the tools to run a pediatric code uh, effectively, but the mindset in dealing with, with pediatric assessment and resuscitation. Uh, and as I've said in podcasts past, you know, the toys we have are just the tool. The real weapon we use is, is our mindset and how we approach a particular problem. Dr. Antevi, welcome to the show. For someone like myself who is not as familiar with your system as as the rest of them, why don't you tell us a little bit first about yourself and and what distinguishes the Antevi pediatric box from other pediatric resuscitation systems? Okay, Kelly, thank you very much for that, Chris. Uh, Thanks as always. So a little bit about myself. I'm essentially, I'm a pediatric ER trained doc. I trained in LA Children's Hospital, Pittsburgh Children's, and then uh, kind of made my way back down to South Florida where I'm from about 10 years ago. And, you know, I recognized very early, uh, even in my own career, that when I would walk into a resuscitation, everyone was kind of looking at me. The parents were looking at me. The nurses were looking at me. And they kind of expected me to know everything. They expected me to know, you know, uh, how to assess a patient, the treatment course. But the worst for me is when they said, you know, I started calling out drugs. And then they started to say to me how much, what dose, what concentration. Then they wanted equipment. They wanted NG Foley central line, chest tubes, and I, I started to kind of become very nervous as an attending physician in, the, in a pediatric ER at a pediatric hospital. Then I was very fortunate to become an EMS medical director for, for an overall system here in South Florida, and then since then I'm, I'm now um, with nine different agencies as the overall kind of medical director, and I then finally realized what the real problem was, and it it's more than just having a widget, it turns out. In other words, if I gave you a tool and said, this tool is going to help you determine how to, how to function in a pediatric code, which is what we've been teaching people for many years, it, it turns out that that's not true. It turns out what I've, what I've learned, and this has taken kind of years to figure out all the different variables of what makes someone able to walk into a, a home, an emergency room, and feel comfortable with a pediatric resuscitation, it turns out that it turns out to be a lot of confidence and kind of knowing what to do before you get to the scene. And interestingly enough, I realized, because I started riding with my folks, that the only time, the only moment that they can actually initiate care for that pediatric patient was actually when they got to the patient. And who's staring at them when they're looking at the patient? Mom and dad. And now it's exactly now. now th- then I then I started going and I started saying, okay, let's see the adult arrest. The adult arrest on the way to the call, these guys had the Superman you know uh, outfit on. They 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 were so excited, they were kind of energized. And I said, holy cow, 
how could it be that for the adult arrest, they feel like Superman, but when the pediatric arrest comes along, they kind of feel like Sha- Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. And I said... <laughs> he was a superhero. He was a superhero, too, okay? Oh, yes. <laughs> he was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so and so then I realized right right then I realized that it's all about knowing the information prior to arrival. So then I said to myself, okay, well, how do we how do we know that information prior to arrival? And the only way to do it is by using an age-based mechanism rather than a length-based mechanism. And you know, I actually trained in Pittsburgh under a gentleman named Dr. Bob Hickey, who is actually the second author of PALS. Bob Hickey. He's probably one of the best resuscitationists I've ever worked for, worked under. The guy only used age-based resuscitation. We never used length-based resuscitation. So then I said to myself, well, if the experts who wrote the book are using age, well, that's what I want to do. And that's how this whole system of the 13579 and this whole method that, that, that we've, we've come along. Um, and, and Chris, you mentioned on the, on the last, uh, on the last uh, show or two shows ago that my, my eight-year-old can do it, and now my five-year-old can do it. Uh, uh, my, my children are the, are the most hated children when I walk into a... Uh, an ER, that's right. Here in South Florida. They're calling the codes <laughs> and, uh, you know, while you're out uh, playing uh, 18 holes. But, uh, but Doc, <laughs> let me go and ask you this, because this is something that it took you a long time to put this system together. I mean, this is nothing that you just gave up in a six-month time frame. How long did it take you really to put this whole process and perfect it? You know, I, um, I would say if, if I had to look at from the, the very first day that I, I, I was sitting in the ER, scared out of my mind, saying, I really, if I don't, if I don't do something for myself, I was, it was embarrassing. I was embarrassed enough that I never told anyone for about four years that I created this little system for myself because I didn't want, to, I didn't want anyone to think that, you know, Pete Antevi, who trained at these great places, really didn't know what he was doing. And um, the nurses kind of caught on to me, and when I would walk into a code room, the three-year-old who hadn't even arrived yet, I would say, I want 1.5 cc's of epi, give me atropine 3 cc's, all this, and that's when we used atropine for resuscitation. You know, yeah. The nurses would look back to me and say, finally, they said, hey, how do you do that? And I said, I just, just kind of learned it. And I, just, I, I, I refused to tell people that I had to make a kind of um, a little system for myself. I was supposed to be the guy in the room who knew what he was doing. Um, and then, so a few years went by, we created the 13579, and then I became an EMS medical director, and all my agencies said, hey, you know what, we, we like that system, it really helps us before we get to the scene, but we want to know every single drug, because the drugs that are listed on this other tape, on the Braslow tape, they're not consistent with our medical protocols. Yeah. So then we said, you know what, maybe we should customize um, our system and so we, we've created these custom books based on age and length, although I don't recommend the length thing, only in certain specific occasions. So now they know what they're doing before they get there, and then when they get there, they have a resource that's calculated every single drug dose for them that's based on what their medical director has specified and, and on nothing else. In other words, it's, it's, it's obviously all PALS recommended, yeah. it's medical director recommended, and it's local. So it's not what I'm telling you to do, it's what you want to do, you know, in St. Louis or wherever you live. And, and so it took us, Chris, you know, just to say about, I would say, eight years until we figured out all the different moving parts of the pediatric resuscitation to kind of get to the point where we now know how to teach it. And our medics, which have been using it here for two years in South Florida, it has made a significant culture change in their mind. And now my medics 
see the two-year-old just like the 60-year-old, and we stay on scene, and we resuscitate on scene, and we have, we have unbelievable outcomes. But, you know, you touched on something there, Doc, that, that uh, I think are, to my mind, are the most important things in working a code, and that's, that's uh, confidence and choreography trusting in your ability to handle it and and the communication with the other code members so you're not looking like a monkey fornicating with a football throughout the resuscitation <laughs> um and uh, hey that football's and, a superhero too <laughs> yeah. um, but that that's the the nice thing about uh, about having a a system and the you mentioned earlier that the tools are uh, the toy is not the the point the mindset to use it properly is and uh you know, it struck me in a recent Facebook forum. We were talking about transport of pediatric codes. You have your guys work them on scene. How do you justify the the working on scene? Not that I disagree with you, but but tell our listeners why it's better to work a pediatric code on scene rather than just rapidly transport. Right. That's a, that's a great question, and it's something that I'm very passionate about. If you if you open Part 14 of the American Heart Association's PALS guidelines from 2010. On the very front page, at the bottom left corner, there's a paragraph that says something to the effect of, if you're a pediatric patient in a hospital who has a cardiac arrest, in the last three decades, we've improved the survival of, of, of those patients to about 30, 30%. And it, the very next line says, however, if you're a pediatric patient who has an arrest in the field, then we have, we have made no improvement in the outcome and the survivability of those patients. It's somewhere in the range of 6%. So... That says to me that in three decades, since they've been collecting this data, we have not made not even one iota of difference. So, in the adult world, I've mandated, just like a lot of people in the country have mandated, that when you have a dead person who's in, you know, asystole, PEA, V-fib, what have you, unless you get ROSC, that person's, every second, every minute that goes by, we know that the outcome and the survivability, the neurologic outcomes, they go down, and they go down quickly. Right. And so... So we, we've mandated in the adult world, stay on scene for 20 minutes. Look at Brent Myers, what he's done in North Carolina. He has ROSC rates in the 40s and 50% range. I mean, yeah. It's unbelievable. So why don't we do the same exact thing for kids? How come kids don't get that same exact chance when they're dead? Let's yeah. do that. And so that, that, that's why, to answer your question, that's why we've mandated, because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So you're, as a pediatric emergency physician, you're, you're telling us that there is no magic resuscitation fairy that lives in the emergency department that's going to do things significantly different than we would do in the field. Correct. And let me tell you where that fairy came from, okay? The fairy came from the fact that someone made a course called ACLS and someone made a course called PALS, and they've convinced you, and they convinced me, that those are two different courses. Yeah. Guess what? It's the same exact course. Those courses say the same exact thing. The only thing different is the dose or the equipment size. But the, if you look at the algorithm for asystole, PEA, VFib, hypoglycemia, you name it, it's the same darn thing. There's nothing different about those things. The only thing different is the mindset, and the only thing different is the, is the fact that in the adults, you know the dose. As soon as someone says six-year-old cardiac arrest, in your mind, all of a sudden, you, you I mean, Without even getting in the truck, you know what you're going to do. Yeah. For pediatrics, we, we, have, we are now able to, to teach medics how to, how to have that same feeling within an instant of the pediatric arrest, and therefore they are able to stay. You can't just go and say, 
all right, Mr. and Mrs. Medic, you, you have to stay for pediatric resuscitation unless you've given them, you know, uh, the, the actual tools and the confidence and the mindset and the scripting, the choreography, like you just said, Kelly. Mm-hmm. That you ha- I mean, th- that's what we finally honed in on, and that's how, that's how I think that we're, we're, we're different, and that's why I think we're, we're really going to change pediatric resuscitation forever, and I, that, that, that's, that's what wakes me up every morning. Yeah, and I got to tell you, I mean, I've been talking about this for years now, and uh, Dr. Antevi and I met as I was the chair of the EPC course uh, back in one of the conferences in Vegas, and I told him at that period of time that this system was going to revolutionize the EMS career field of how we've not only handled pediatrics, but pediatric resuscitation, and, and Doc, that was what, about uh, five years ago now, uh, going yes, back? Yes, yes, and, and, you know, and, and, and I, I have to say this, you know, that there have been very few people along this road. I mean, if I could tell you how many people have told me, Pete, what are you doing? This is never going to work. And there, there have been probably a handful of people, Chris, you being one of them, who kind of said, you know what? This, this, thing, is, this thing is going to work. And, have, 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 you know, I mean, it's, it's really people like you, uh, people like George Rawls in, in, uh, in, in Orange County, in, in, in Orlando, uh, Paul Pepe. I mean, yeah, yeah, there, there are a handful of people who have, who have who have really said I think this is going to work and it's because of people like you that's that's why I'm still going and I and I, and I thank you very much for that. Well, I'm I'm glad that you say that and because I'm doing this show really in, in, I'm an invalid now you know I've got a a peach size mm-hmm. uh, kidney stone so and yeah, I'm peach yeah. size kidney stone peach now peach. but anyway <laughs> let me ask you this doc so <laughs> one of the things that you talk about and it's very very close to me is confidence on scene and we go in there and we see a pediatric arrest and we get those nerves working and oh my god what's the dose and what's going to be the tube size and we grab the kid out of the mother's arms and we turn around Mm -hmm. and we head out to the truck you've really tried to break that you know that cycle of care by making us stay on scene and treat the patient you've come up with an acronym and and go ahead and share that acronym with us and kind of give a little bit about uh, a little bit behind it right so so uh Basically, once once we figured out how to teach the whole uh, confidence, and wh- we we really explained to people what their brain was doing when they heard the word pediatric or two year old arrest. Something happens to you, and we we kind of undo that when we do our education. And once once we can we we can teach you that, and and you can understand that hey, I can do this. This is just like an adult, and we we kind of get you to that, which doesn't take that long to to get to that point. Then we say. Instead of A, B, C, D, E, as we know for, um, for, for PALS and ACLS, I've kind of changed the A, B, C, D, E for all of my systems, and this is what I've mandated for our systems to do. So, so A is arrive, uh, so they arrive on scene. B is bag, so that's the first thing they want to do is bag. You know, even though you know, we can have a whole other discussion about which comes first, but for the most part, I want them to bag first. Uh, begin chest compressions, which, which, which begins it comes kind of immediately. So C is compressions. D is for drill. I want them to, on every arrest, I don't want them messing around for an IV. They're going for the bone. And then E is epi. So arrive, bag, compress, drill, epi, the dose of which you know already before you even got off the scene. And, and all while that's going on, someone is engaging the parent and saying to them, and we script people to say this, say, Mrs. Jones, just give us a few minutes. We're going to get things done right here. It's very important. These first couple minutes are very important. Bear with us, and we're going to get things done, and then we're going to head to the hospital, okay? And then, you know, eye-to-eye contact. Without that kind of statement, 
you know, you have to bring down the room. You have to bring down, it's the paramedic with the body language, with how they're speaking, with what they say, that enables you. Just like when the adult is in arrest for 20 minutes, someone is saying to the family, we're going to be here for 20 minutes. We're going to move the furniture. We're going to get your father back, your grandfather back, because this is right here, right now, is the time to get your family member back to life. We know it. The studies show it. Just give us a few minutes. Is that okay? Yes. Okay, good. We're on the same team. Let's do it. You have to script it, you have to choreograph that, and you have to have the tools to be able to do that. And there's a lot of variables to allow that A, B, C, D, E to actually work, and that's, and, and, and that, that's where we are now, and that's the exciting part about it. Pete, I like the way you, you, uh, you stress the importance of, of working the call on scene and communication with the family members. You mentioned earlier in one of our uh, in our conversation that uh, that uh, you assign roles in in the beginning of the resuscitation. One person gets to be Doctor House, and the other one gets to be Doctor Phil. And I think that's the key to uh, working a smooth resuscitation. Uh, so many so many of us in EMS think that the default assumption is is uh, that codes have to be um, chaotic, and that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? I I mean I couldn't agree with you more. I think that. I'll tell you a, just a quick story that's interesting. When I was a resident, I trained under, under an ICU doctor. Her name is Howard. And um, Howard taught me one thing. He says, Pete, the more people yell for the doctor to come into the room, the slower you walk. And he says, you always walk into the room and you kind of look at the parents. You, you're not smiling, obviously, but you're kind of, you have that look of, I got this. You, you know, if you're running in, if you look nervous, if you feel nervous, you lose everybody. You lose, the, you lose the family. You lose the nurses. You lose the other doctors who are working with you. So the really central core of a resuscitation from a psychological standpoint, from a comfort level standpoint, even from the perception standpoint, probably the most important standpoint, it all goes back to who's running the show. And if you can, if you can kind of learn how to do that in, in a way that is... That, that, that is kind of scripted, that you learn early on how to do that, then all of a sudden it becomes natural. It looks normal, and people aren't even going to question why you're staying on scene. They're going to expect you to do that. Yeah. And that, that's, really, that, that's really where I want to change it so that everyone knows. Parents come to expect the fact that I want you to treat my dead child here, and I want you to get them back to life right in front of me. And, and, and I think that's the movement that we're trying to create. Yeah, that's the that's the reaction you want to foster, as as Hawkeye Pierce put it, Mash. Uh, the pros from Dover have arrived. That's right. And uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember that show, if not, go ahead and Google it. But so you know, Doc, it's always great. Every time I, I talk to you, I always feel my own confidence level rise, uh, knowing that uh, you know I can handle these pediatric patients. I have in my career, I have changed since our relationship. Uh, how I approach these scenes and uh, try to give a little bit more of those confidences in the paramedics that I work with as well. So if folks want to learn a little bit more about the system, if folks want to learn a little bit about classes or, you know, anything that they want to know about the hand-heavy pediatric system, uh, where do they go and how do they find that? Um, I guess uh, first they could, they could start at our website, which is just handheavy.com. Uh, the, the, the innovation zone that, that you did for us a while back, I think, really kind of shows uh, the the kind of the, the meat and potatoes of it. It doesn't. Uh, I think now we're talking more about the psychology and the role playing and so forth, uh, which is really what we've kind of uh, gravitated towards. Another thing is is that if folks are going to be at you know NAEMSP, I'm giving really this, this talk uh, an hour version of this talk this year. 
Uh, I'll be at EMS Expo giving this talk, um, EMS Today giving the same talk. Uh, I'll be at ASAP giving the same talk. So uh, it's really been an amazing thing how we've kind of, we're, we're, we're talking about not a widget. We're talking about the brain and how your brain functions. And once you can understand it, it really changes the way that you feel about it. And I think that's really the, 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 uh, the, the thing that we're doing. And then the last thing I'll say is that we are now in development of a four-hour course that doesn't teach you algorithms because I think that any, anyone who knows ACLS knows the algorithm. So I'm not going to teach you the algorithm. We're going to teach you everything that we talked about on the show today, which is confidence, comfort, the age-based system that we teach, and then how to draw up some of these medications. Even if I gave you the dose, it turns out some people couldn't even draw it up because the volumes are so small. Uh, you have to kind of do things to certain drugs, like make D25 out of D50, um, and all of a sudden we start to learn about all these different new things. So we're developing a four-hour course that teaches you the nuts and bolts, and when you leave that course, you will say, I am going to stay on scene. I'm going to get that kid back to life. And we've seen dramatic results, and really that's... When they, when they put me six feet under, Chris, and hopefully I don't die from a kidney stone, but when they put me six feet under, I want to, I want, I want to say that we've actually moved that 6% survival rate in EMS, and I want to get it up to 30%. Well, I got to tell you, uh, if, yeah. there, if, if there's anyone that could do it, Pete, it's you. And I'm really glad that you were here. And I'm glad you mentioned the kidney stone. As, as a physician, yeah, is, sure. as a pediatric <laughs> physician, is there anything that you could tell me that I could do for this orange size kidney stone that I have? <laughs> that I've been, it's just been killing me throughout this whole show, but I've been trooping on. Pete's the perfect per person for it because you are a big baby. Thank you very much. All right, well, let's just forget that. Pete, I want to thank you for joining us, and uh, please come back again and share your knowledge with us because I think it's always great for the listeners to hear. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it, and thanks, Kelly. I uh, appreciate it, and uh, I hope to, be, I hope to be, be back on the show sometime soon, and I'm sure I'll see you guys at the uh, local conference sometime soon. Thanks for coming, Pete, and, and being a part of our clinical issue and our guest table segment. And as always, folks, we've reached the end of our, our allotted time. So if you have any questions, concerns, comments, uh, feedback for us, email us at the show at ems1.com. And for co-hosts Chris Civilero and myself, this is Kelly Grayson, and we're signing off on Inside EMS.